You know, I've been thinking this week about how we behave differently when we believe someone's coming back. You ever think about that? Like just an example, this morning I was at Starbucks wrapping up some things on my sermon and, and I saw a table that had like a crumpled up napkin and a half empty bag of donuts. And I liked that table because it was in the corner and it had a power cord. So, so I went over there and grabbed the stuff off and was heading to the trash can when a man walked up and said, and he grabbed it out of my hand. And I said, I'm so sorry. I, I thought you were gone. You see, if I had known he was coming back to that table, I never would have taken it. I would have behaved differently. Right now, me and Carolyn are blessed to have my parents visiting at our house. And this morning, I was, I was getting ready for, for the service. And my mom went out to take the dog out while I was getting ready. And I knew she was going to be coming back in. Therefore, I didn't run through the house in my underwear. <laughs> and mom says, thank you, Scott. <laughs> we behave differently when we know that someone's coming back. God knows that. He knew that. That's why when we think about the return of Jesus, check this out. There are about 2,000 references to his second coming in the Old Testament. There's about 300 in the New Testament. That's one out of every 30 verses that point to his second coming. 23 of the New Testament books point to it. And for every prophecy in the Bible that pointed to his first coming, there are eight that point to his second coming. Jesus knows that we will believe and act differently if we know he's coming back. And as I think about that, I think about what, what does that look like? And the best picture I can think of is, is from George Wheeler's life. He's, he's with his wife, Deb, with the kids this morning. George Wheeler was in Vietnam. If you ever get to talk to George about his experiences, he'll tell you about one where his unit was pinned down. And he can tell you more details. But they were awaiting a helicopter coming to rescue them. And I think about George's position there, and I think about it like this. Eyes on the sky, boots on the ground. Because that's where he was living at that moment. Eyes on the sky, boots on the ground. And I think that's a great metaphor for where we live. We ought to live with trust in Jesus as our Savior and, and this anticipation of His coming back, but also with our boots on the ground, serving Him, carrying out His orders until He returns. So I want to use this eyes on the sky, boots on the ground as a metaphor for something Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. If you remember last week, we, we were talking about where Jesus said, don't worry. Don't worry. And it was Eric that, that reminded me this week that one of the best antidotes to worry is to focus on the return of Christ. So these things are in order on purpose. So let's jump in. First, I want to talk about eyes on the sky. Watching and waiting for the return of Jesus. Does that describe us? I'm pretty sure it does. I heard it in the worship this morning. I heard a lot of amens when we were singing, Come Lord Jesus. Watching and waiting. Listen to what Jesus said. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. 
like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. And you see the scene he's painting here. A master goes away to a wedding and the servants are left at home. And the challenge is for the servants to be ready. Now, weddings in that day would drive you nuts if you're very schedule-oriented. How many of you are, if something happens five minutes late in your day, the rest of the day is thrown off? Okay, you would not like weddings in this time. Okay, because basically this is how weddings came together. However long it takes to get all the supplies we need, that's when it starts. And then depending on how many guests come and when the supplies run out, that's when the wedding party ends. So we think we're doing pretty good if we make it till midnight at a wedding reception and we're still out there dancing, right? Sometimes these wedding parties would last for up to a week. (laughs) So this makes the picture all that more vivid. These servants aren't just waiting a couple hours. They're potentially waiting days. And they don't know when the master is coming back, but what's he say? He tells them a couple of things. He says, be dressed, ready for service. Now, be dressed in the NIV, it's clarified for us, but the original phrase is much more picturesque. It's, it's actually, gird up your loins. I don't know how you feel about that phrase. I think about it, I'm like, okay, I know what my loins are, but I'm not quite sure how to gird them, or even if I'd want to. What, what is, gird up your loins? Well, it shows up a couple times in the, in the Old Testament. Once around Passover, when, when the Jews are getting ready to leave Egypt, and God tells Moses, tell the people, gird up your loins while you eat that Passover lamb. What it means is they had long flowing robes back then. Not real good for, for traveling quickly anywhere. You could trip on them and stuff. So if you, you're going to gird up your loins, you're going to roll that robe up, tuck it in your belt so you're ready to run. You're ready to go. Elijah did it when he raced Ahab down the mountain. Any runners in here? Elijah's your prophet. That's your prophet of choice. He girded up his loins and raced down that mountain. That's the picture here. Be dressed, ready to go. That's what he says to the church today. Be ready to go when I come back. Keep your lamps burning. That's that's another uh, picturesque thing. Back then, obviously, they had oil lamps, so you'd, you'd have to go to some work to keep those running. Today we just flip a switch and as long as the bulb doesn't burn out, we're good. Back then you had to, it it was intentional. And light is often a picture for knowledge throughout the New Testament. We live in a world that's getting darker and darker. And and the challenge here is stay informed on two fronts, I believe. One, do not put your head in the sand as to what's going on around you in the world. Don't don't go hide out and, and bury your head. Stay informed as the men of Issachar and Chronicles understood their times and knew what to do about them, but also stay informed on what God says. Remember what God says. As, as one father reading the book of Revelation in his den, his boy walked in and, and his father gets to the end and he said, well, that was the end. And the son says, how'd it go? And the dad says, God wins. We've got to stay informed on both 
of those fronts. And he says what? So that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Why will it be good? Check this out. You're watching faithfully for when Jesus comes, looking forward to it. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Now, I don't know if you're like me, if you've ever read the upper room story. You're like, man, I'm kind of jealous, honestly. That would be really cool to be there. The promise here is that that day is coming for those who are watching for him. He says it at the upper room himself. Luke twenty-two seventeen. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's looking forward to that wedding feast where we sit down at the table with him. And Jesus, of all people, serves us. Can you imagine him passing the bread, seeing the, the holes in his hand? Passing the drink to you and the fellowship we'll have at that moment. He says, it will be good if you watch and you wait for me. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. The original language had the idea of the second watch or the third watch. That's nine to midnight, midnight to three. Those wee hours of the morning where it's very dark, right? And we look at that and say, yeah, that's our world. It's very dark. He says, blessed are those who keep watching, even in the darkness. And the thing about it is, when he comes is a surprise. But understand this, verse 39. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. It's not like the dentist appointment. Okay, if you're like me at our house, Carolyn schedules my dentist appointment like three months in advance. And I occasionally dread it for those three months coming up to that point. But what usually happens about two or three days beforehand is I floss like crazy. <laughs> okay, I, I am cramming for that and I think the dentist is going to be impressed and I get in there every time he says, you're cramming, aren't you? Your gums are all bloody. They're all swelled up. <laughs> the thing that Jesus is saying is, look, my return, you don't know the day or the hour. It's not scheduled like that. You've got to be ready at all times. It's more like, and even this has its limitations as an illustration because we knew what night it was. I think about the fireworks party. We went to a fireworks party last night at Taylor and Erica's house. And throughout the, the evening, our, our missional community was hanging out. and You know, we'd talk. We'd eat food. We talked some more, but what I saw many people doing, including myself, is we'd regularly walk out to the backyard and look up. They start yet? No, and then we come back in and eat a little more, and then right back out, because what? We didn't want to miss the fireworks, right? That's why we were there. They have the best view in town, <laughs> and for the fellowship. <laughs> but I'll tell you, everyone was out there watching for the fireworks. Jesus says, let it be like that. Let it be like that as you watch for me. So Peter, the one with lots of questions and statements in verse 41 says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us, your, your close inner circle, or to everyone? 
And Jesus is going to give them a long answer that basically shows this is for everyone to keep in mind. But this is where we get on to, to the boots on the ground. We looked at eyes on the sky watching and waiting. Now I want to talk about the serving Jesus that he wants for his followers. Verse 42. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Back then, it wasn't uncommon to put one servant in charge of the other servants. And when I read this, I think about my years at George Jewell Catering in Chicago. George Jewell was a very proper Englishman. And he had this wonderful catering company. I got to meet Michael Jordan. I got to serve in the museums. And we served at people's houses where they would give 50 waiters $200 tips. I mean, it was wild what was going on there. These fancy parties where you walk in a tuxedo and say, hors d'oeuvre, sir, hors d'oeuvre. You know, and you have the fancy china and the fancy silverware that George Jewell would send there. And as I worked there, I got the opportunity to be a head butler. What a head butler was is after the owners would contract a party with someone, the head butler was responsible for overseeing what happened at that house. And often the stuff would show up, you know, all the, all the food, the chef with the food, all the plates, all the tablecloths. And it was the head butler's job to make sure that all that stuff was set up. Because you know what happened about an hour before the party? One of the owners would come back in and look around. Looks good, young man. If you didn't do that, you can bet you'd lose your job. Because why? You're in charge of their stuff, their clients, everything that's going on. You're a steward of everything that that company has done. I think that's the picture Jesus is giving here. We are stewards of the relational opportunities that God puts in our lives, the, the people he puts around us. We're stewards of the money that he gives us. We're stewards of our possessions. And Jesus is watching, saying, Be faithful with what I give you. He says, in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. In that I see this, this shepherding mindset that, yes, it applies to pastors, but I think it also applies to any of us who find ourselves in a position of spiritual influence over others in our lives. Am I feeding them with the word? Am I feeding them with the love of Jesus, kindness, etc.? It will be good for the one he finds doing that. But verse 5, he says, Suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. Maybe some of us feel that right now. We look around and say, Jesus, it's been 2,000 years and there's been a lot going on down here. I know you know, but it feels like a long time. And that can lead us to be discouraged and maybe neglectful, forgetful. My master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. You see this harmful behavior towards other people. You see this selfishness. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. I have not seen that verse on any church signs lately. It's a hard verse, okay? 
And yet Jesus says it. So we have a choice. Can we sort of skirt around it and just get onto something easier? Or we can say, what are you saying, Jesus? And as I studied it, I've got to admit, this is a confusing passage. There are different commentators that interpret it two different ways, okay? Warren Wiersbe looks at this person that's cut to pieces and assigned a place with the unbelievers, and he, he believes that that word unbelievers can also be translated unfaithful. And it's a, he believes it's a strong metaphor for a believer who's saved by grace through faith and yet loses all or most of his reward as he enters heaven because he was not faithful with the opportunities God gave him. He looks at the passage in 1 Corinthians 3 for that interpretation. Paul says in verse 11, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, those are works driven by the Spirit out of love for God, the works he's prepared in advance for us to do, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. That's the selfish stuff. The stuff we do with bad motives for our glory, that kind of stuff. We choose what we build with. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day, in short, for the day of the Lord, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. So whether our passage is talking about this or not in Luke, this is a spiritual reality. As believers, we will stand before our Father. We will stand before Jesus Christ, and He will look at the works in our lives. And He says there are going to be some believers that get in. They're saved by grace, but almost everything they did was selfish. And it's all burned up, and they, they have no reward in heaven. They're there, but without reward. And I think about that, and... I don't think Paul meant that for us to take comfort, like, whew, I still get in. That's good. Because how many of us go to Disneyland and, you know, we're like, hey, I'm content just to walk around. You know, I know there's all these great attractions and all these great rides, but I'm okay with just walking around. No, we want to experience all that we can. And what Jesus is saying is in his story in Luke, he says, the one who's faithful, I'll put him in charge of all my possessions. There's, there's this theme throughout Scripture that if we're faithful to Jesus in this life, He'll give us greater responsibility and privilege to co-reign with Him in the next life. And I don't know about you, I like that idea of serving, co-reigning with Christ to the, to the highest degree possible. He offers it, I want to shoot for it. So that's one possibility. This is talking about an unfaithful believer. John MacArthur among other commentators, looks at it and says, no, this is a reference to the person who wasn't faithful with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not believe in Jesus Christ. And so when he says he will cut them to pieces and assign them a place with the unbelievers, it means unbelievers. And it's talking about the eternal torment of hell. Either way, I don't want to be found in one of those groups. Speaking about believers, I want to be a faithful believer in the power of the Spirit. If it's speaking about faith in the gospel, I want to make sure everyone in this room has placed their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Because He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. 
You look at how this unfaithful servant acted. Beat the other servants. Eat and drink and, and get drunk. And again, I think about who, who is it that, that God has given me spiritual influence over in this life. And I take this passage seriously as a pastor. I want you to take it seriously when you think about those you have spiritual influence over. We are to feed and care for those folks, not be selfish, nor abuse them, or go on a power trip with them. We're to share the gospel with them, to speak the truth of the word, to, to serve them and, and care for them. That's the faithful steward. I met with someone this week, sitting on the square looking at Granite Mountain. And this person was telling me about their pastor, how much their pastor meant to him. And as he told me about his pastor, he told me some things, that he had had a rough childhood. The, the person I was talking to, his father had left him early on, and some uncles and and brothers actually came in and took advantage of him in unholy ways. And so he said that the reason his pastor meant so much to him was that he watched his pastor love his family, watched his pastor, pastor love his wife and, and his kids. And he said, if a pastor will love his wife and his kids that way, I know he will love me. And I said, you know what? That's what Paul says. The elder must manage his own family well. Why is that? Because spiritual authority requires us to care and serve and lovingly lead. That's why that guy's pastor meant so much to him. Do I act that way? Do you act that way? This next part tells us that God is fair, even in judgment. Listen to this. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This tells me that even in judgment our Father is fair. People often ask me the question, is hell going to be the same for Hitler as it is for somebody in a tribe in Africa that never heard the gospel but loved their family? I don't believe so. I believe there will be hell for anyone who does not believe, but God is fair in his judgment. He talks about few blows and many blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. How many of you like Westerns? I know my dad does. <laughs> he was talking about John Wayne yesterday. We drew, pa drove past a field on Mingus Mountain. He said, that reminds me of a scene where John Wayne was going one way on a horse and three bad guys were coming at him the other way and they were firing guns. It's starting to rub off on me. I read Hondo earlier this year. <laughs> it's kicking in. But Warren Wiersbe gives, paints a, a Western picture that I think is poignant in light of what we're learning here. He, he tells a story of a a young boy on a runaway carriage. The, the horse is going crazy. And, and this young boy's life is going to come to an end until a, a young man jumps in the way, grabs the horse, risks his life to save the young boy. This young boy grows up, and he grows up to be a lawless man, robbing banks and other things, killing people. 
And eventually he comes to court. And he sees the young man who risked his life for him behind the bench. Young boy who grew into a young man starts to say, Hey, remember me? Yeah, you risked your life for me. So, hey, maybe you can help me out again. He can help me out again. Warren Wiersbe says, But the words from the bench silenced his plea. Young man, then I was your savior. Today I am your judge. And I must sentence you to be hanged. Wiersbe's application of this is, One day Jesus Christ will say to rebellious sinners, During that long day of grace, I was the savior. And I would have forgiven you if you had only believed. But today... I am your judge. Depart from me into everlasting fire. This is a heavy concept. Jesus as judge. There's a meme going around Facebook right now. My, my friend put it up because the common thing that many will say is only God can judge me. Okay? That's their refrain anytime we talk about sin. One of the memes I saw said, people be like, only God can judge me. And I be like, that should scare you. I mean, that's the truth of us as we think about a holy father. If, if we choose to ignore his offer of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 says it this way, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't rejoice in these words. These words weigh heavy on my heart. Yet I will not wash them away because our Father put them in his word. They're meant to drive us to a Savior who took our sin upon himself to a wooden cross where he died to pay the price to make us right with his Father. If those words weigh heavy on our hearts this morning, that's the place to go. I want to close by talking about our two main ideas, eyes on the sky. Often when I leave for work or an appointment, Carolyn will tell Evan when I'm just about back home. And one of the roads that I drive on the way back home is right along our back fence on our backyard. And often I'll drive down that road after a day of work and I'll look over that fence and there's little Evan. His, his eyes can barely peek over that fence. <laughs> and I see his hand. And I got to tell you, that fills my heart with joy. You know, I see that. I'm like, man, I can't wait to to reunite with my boy and my family. And I think about that eyes on the sky idea and I, I just can't help but think, man, is that how Jesus feels when he sees us looking? 
when he sees us waiting, when he sees us watching, he's saying, I can't can't wait to get back with them. Robert Murray McShane used to ask people, do you believe that Jesus is coming today? And often they would say no. And he would say, then you'd better be ready for his coming at an hour when you think not. C.S. Lewis, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Lucy's talking with Aslan, the Christ figure. He's leaving. And he says, do not look so sad. We shall meet soon again. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, what do you call soon? I call all times soon, said Aslan, and instantly he was banished away. 2 Timothy 4.8 There is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. There's a special crown for those waiters and watchers. I want to be in that group. That's eyes on the sky. Boots on the ground. We believe he's coming. How then shall we live? 2 Peter 3 The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Looking forward ought to change the way we live. Boots on the ground. Close with two more stories. 20th Century Fox was looking to hire a salesman. This is a true story. Someone to join their sales department. And they had over 1,500 applicants. One man sent in a letter. And he said, hey, I work at such and such a furniture store at this address. I'm the redhead salesman. Come in at a time unannounced. Find me. Look to buy a couch. And you watch how I act. And you see how I treat you. And if I can make the sale. And based on that, see if I'm the one. He didn't know when they were coming. They came. And out of all those 1,500 applicants, he was hired. Why? Because he was ready. He was ready day in and day out. That's the boots on the ground idea. One more story that I think is awesome. There's, there's another pastor who had a young son named Ben. And they had been praying for Ben to trust in Jesus for years. And for whatever reason, Ben was, would not come to that point. And one morning they're at, they're at breakfast eating Cheerios. And, and Ben finally says to his mom and dad, I'm ready to, to trust in Jesus. And so they're excited. They look at each other and they're expecting to have a moment of prayer there where he gives his life, receives Jesus as his Savior. But instead, the little boy got up and ran upstairs. This is a true story. And he grabbed his backpack, his little Sesame Street backpack, and he, he got his Star Wars pajamas and he started packing them in his Sesame Street suitcase. And they said, Ben, what are you doing? <laughs> packing. Why? To go be with Jesus. He thought he was going to be with Jesus right that second. (laughs) And he was ready. Are we? Father, I thank you 
for these words of Jesus. This challenge to keep our eyes on the sky and our boots on the ground. May your spirit empower us as we watch and wait. As we share your gospel with a world that so desperately needs it. May we be faithful stewards who encourage and feed one another, love each other, care for one another. Jesus, thanks for the hope that you bring, promising that you'll come again. It's in your name we pray. Amen.